Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to Cambridge, where Martin Gayford speaks with us about the importance of seeing art while traveling, art in the age of Instagram, and his new book, The Pursuit of Art. Martin is an art critic, art historian, and author who's written articles for a variety of publications like The Spectator and The Telegraph. He has written many books, including A History of Pictures, co-written with David Hockney, and a book on Michelangelo. So now, here is Martin Gayford. Well, Martin, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's very nice to be talking to you. So you are an art critic, an art historian, and a writer who has made a career out of writing about art. You've written many articles and books, some on Constable and Michelangelo, and several co-written with David Hockney. So now in this new book, The Pursuit of Art, uh, you recall your travels around the world to interview artists and to experience art. So why is it important to see art... um, in situ rather than in books or online? Well, there are a number of uh, different reasons, actually, but uh, I'll start off with um, two reasons why, uh, say, a painting is uh, a different proposition if you look at it, if you're standing in front of the real thing from looking at any kind of uh, reproduced image. and uh, that's something that I think art history has tended to forget ever since the invention of photography, because actually historically, art history has depended on photography and looking at uh, photographs of works of art. But uh, a photograph image is fundamentally different from, say, an oil painting on canvas or on a panel. Um, Damien Hirst, contemporary artist, once um, said something to me which I think is absolutely correct, which is that um, the thing about an oil painting is that it's an object in front of you. It's not uh, a virtual image which you might see on your phone or your screen or in Mm -hmm. a book. Um, It's a layer of uh, chemicals, uh, organic and inorganic, uh, which has a physical depth and which has certain set dimensions and it reflects the light in 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 a specific way which is probably which probably varies according to the light which is also likely to to fluctuate especially if it's in natural light so um it's um not it's not actually possible to reproduce all those causes for texture the reflectivity mm-hmm. and so forth um Another thing is that the, the scale's always wrong, uh, the, the color's always wrong, the texture's always wrong, and the scale is almost always wrong. And, and, and in combination, those mean that um, you're just not seeing uh, the, the full thing. I mean, you can get 
a pretty good idea, particularly of a sort of a small, smoothly painted picture from a photograph. But yeah. you, know, you know, an altarpiece, twenty feet high for a, an Italian church, you've really got to see in uh, in the place it was ideally in the place it was done for. Mm-hmm. And with sculpture, it gets it, it, it's a degree more impossible to reproduce because a sculpture is likely to have. Uh, um, four different uh, uh, aspects, maybe more. Uh, Anthony Gormley, leading contemporary sculptor, told me recently that he always had his own works photographed from eight different separate directions. And if the work is good, you get eight different, completely different views. And it's also, it's got, it's, it's got a weight, it's got mass, it's a physical object mm-hmm. in front of you, so you, you feel it in, in relation to your body. All of these uh, factors demand that you actually, ideally, you see the see the real thing and not a photograph. Mm-hmm. The same could be said for uh, not just sculpture and works of art, but also works of architecture, for example. You know, oh yes, oh yes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think you can experience a building without walking around it, going inside it, not fully. Mm-hmm. And it's like a. Going... I think that's absolutely. Sorry. Carry on. No, I was just going to say, it's like, you know, going to see the Eiffel Tower for the very first time, you just can't capture, I know this is a very basic example, but you just can't capture its immensity and its 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 height and, you know, the entire experience just by, by looking at it in, in photographs. So there is something to be said about that. And I think it's, it's a point that you drive home when you go to, in, in the very first chapter of your book, where you talk about going to uh, the back countries of, <laughs> in Romania to see the endless column. Exactly. Well, the Brancusi's endless column is is a very good example of something which, although it is endlessly uh, talked about and referred to and um, it's it's on the cover of books about modern sculpture, but um, because it's in a a rather out-of-the-way corner of southwestern Romania, which is a long way from the tourist trail. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the sort of place that visitors to Romania naturally go to. Very, very few people, including um, professional art historians, curators and artists, have actually seen it. And you can't really um, transmit the experience of um, an object which is uh, you know, 100 feet high and reflective uh, and uh, stands in a landscape uh, the way that this does through a, through a photograph. Uh, in the end, when my wife and I went to see it, we, we made a film of it, actually, a mm. short film standing next to it. And that gave, that gave more of an idea. But uh, again, really, there's no substitute for, for, for being there. Can you, uh, apart from what you talk about in the book, can you recall a time where uh, you viewed a work of art in person and it exceeded your expectations or overwhelmed you or took you by surprise? Yeah, well, I mean, very, 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 very often. There's there's a saying uh, amongst uh, art dealers in the art trade that the ones that look good in photographs are the bad ones. (laughs) Uh, That is, um, uh, a, a good painting will almost always be uh, be exceed your expectations, and uh, a, a huge painting. Uh, well, for example, uh, uh, the Tintoretto's in Venice. Um, uh, there's one on the um, 
far wall of the main chamber in the Doge's Palace, for example, which is, I think, still just about the largest oil painting ever painted. And uh, the, certainly uh, Tintoretto in Venice is something which um, I, I, I didn't really comprehend until I went to Venice, mm. to the Scuola di San Rocco, which is, a, which is a sort of permanent one-man show of Tintoretto, um, two floors of dozens of oil paintings. And um, he's somebody actually who's quite difficult to see even in top-quality art museums because most of his uh, important works have, stay, have stayed in the places they originally painted for, which are largely in Venice itself. Hmm. Yeah, and speaking of, of, of that, like going to see Pozzo's Apotheosis of St. Ignatius, I mean, that's something hmm. that, you know, you can't quite comprehend in reproductions yep. and textbooks and you see it and it's just mind-boggling how yes. how powerful it is. Yes, well that's a very good example of what in contemporary art jargon we, uh, it's called a site-specific work. It's really uh, uh, well, it, it's certainly integral to, to the ceiling of that church in Rome mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and really uh, it's integral to the whole structure and you've got to stand underneath it to, to, to begin to comprehend how it functions. And as you say, well, it's an amazing thing it is as if the roof of the church had been taken off and uh, and this uh, vision of us ascending into, into uh, the heavens has been replaced, replaced it. Right, yeah. It's magnificent. What about uh, the inverse? What about, you know, feeling underwhelmed, perhaps because of how frequently we've been exposed to images? Disappointment, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think one does sometimes feel disappointment. It's quite, um, it's quite hard to get the thrill that you're supposed to from Leonardo da Vinci, actually. <laughs> uh, not all of them, but uh, there are not very many of them. And they're, uh, the paintings, I mean, a large, very large number of drawings. And... Um, uh, several of them have got problems uh, if, from the viewer's point of view. The, the Mona Lisa famously is um, more or less permanently surrounded during the opening hours of the, uh, at the Louvre by uh, people trying to take photographs or so photographs of themselves with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so comprehension of it is quite difficult. I found the Benoit Madonna in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg almost as difficult because there was a, a tour group with a, somebody lecturing about it more or less permanently in front. So uh, yeah. as one as one moved off and another arrived, and in the end I stuck my head behind the back of the tour guide who was lecturing on it, uh, and between her back and the, and the, and the painting, uh, which was rather uncomfortable. <laughs> position to get into and, and I managed to get a look at it like that but uh, that, that I would say is one case where we probably would get a lot more from a photograph and <laughs> actually the last supper in Milan is has now been rendered rather tiresome to, to look at because you first of all you have to go through a sort of um, uh, airlock as if you were about to enter a space station mm. and then when you get inside you're, you, you it's it's Obviously, it's time limited, so you don't really get a chance to uh, 
for it to sink in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yes. So you mentioned uh, uh, people taking pictures of, of works of art and also taking pictures of themselves in front of the works of art and this kind of choking up the access to the images or kind of complicating the experience. Well, it, it can do, it can do that. And I sort of, I wonder whether it gets in the way of the person's experience. Well, there's nothing wrong with taking photographs of works of art. I, I do it myself, but I, it's, some people when watches going around museums seem to be taking photographs rather than looking at the works mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, and it's not really a substitute for the actual experience. I mean, it may be a useful record if you want to um, refer back to a work, but um, it goes back to what I started off by saying, you, you, but when you're actually in front of an oil painting and you're not uh, um, in, a, in a swirling crowd or in the difficult conditions which there may be for if we're trying to look at very, very popular works of art, then mm-hmm. uh, that's your opportunity to, to stand and contemplate. Mm-hmm. So then what do you think about the, I, I don't know, I assume an increase of image consumption thanks to things like Instagram, right? Like, I don't know, the MoMA and the Tate probably combined have 10 million followers. People are yes. seeing these images more than perhaps they've ever seen them. And so... What, what what do you think about things like Instagram and the popularization of these images? Well, I don't think uh, it's a bad thing per se. In fact, I think it's a continu- uh-huh. continuation of a process which has been going on since 1839. Um, uh, one of David Hockney, my, as you said, my, uh, my co-author on a book called The History of Pictures, one of his insights is that Art history, conventionally uh, understood, depends on photographs. It probably mm-hmm. uh, wouldn't have been possible to, to for the discipline to develop if it hadn't been for photographs. And long before the invention of uh, Instagram or smartphones, um, certain art historians were really dependent on file filing cabinets full of probably black and white photographs and collating them together. Uh, but um, I was taught at the Courthouse Institute, or one of my teachers once remarked that he, uh, that he thought bad, uh, bad art historians relied entirely on photographs. And that if you really wanted to uh, write with authority about a certain work, you really got to look at the original. Mm. Uh, I think that's still the case, isn't it? Uh, um, Look, I mean, we all look at photographs, and we're, we're, as you say, to an extent, we're drowning in imagery now. There's, there's, there are billions of images. Everything's gone up by several quantum leaps um, uh, in the last couple of decades. And um, uh, none of that is necessarily bad, but I think what is important is that we shouldn't uh, lose sight of this uh, or understanding of the importance of the original. Mm-hmm. So if someone's um, consumption of art, I don't know if I like that phrase, consumption of art, but f- whatever, yeah. somebody's consumption of art is entirely dependent. Well, we could on... say experience. Okay. Yes. If somebody's experience of art is entirely kind of dependent on the digital images, then they're kind of missing out on that. Yes. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that could even be uh, creative, but it's, it's taking you off at a, at a tangent. Uh, James Turrell, American artist who, uh, who works in light mm-hmm. largely, told me that um, he started off as an art student in California and because there weren't very many paintings by, for example, Rothko in California in those days, uh, his course largely consisted of looking at slides, so illuminated photographs of works on a screen. And somehow uh, that's may have led him off into working in in light rather than in um, canvas and, and paint. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but um, yes, I, I don't think you're getting the, the the full experience as the as the creator intended. If you're not looking at the thing, and you may, it's also pretty hard really to comprehend the quality of work of art if you haven't seen the original. So. Uh, unless a fake is very bad, it may be hard to spot a fake, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, in the book, um, in one chapter, I forget exactly where, but you kind of weigh the differences between, um, I guess, seeing artifacts or works of art in an in ancient Indian statue, for example, in a museum yes. versus like in the wild, so to speak. Um, mm. And so this is where you talk a little bit about situational context and the settings in which mm. we see works of art. Um, and, and so like, I'm thinking now about Instagram and I'm also thinking about museums um, and, and how yes. that factors into kind of the, the R of the work of art. So I, I guess how is the context or the setting in which we see a work of art important in the experience? I'd say it's absolutely crucial. And and both, for example, Instagram and the traditional art museum, as, uh, as it developed from the 18th century, are ways of, if you don't mind the word, decontextualizing mm-hmm. works of art. The, um, the British Museum or the Met or the Louvre depend to a large extent, on uh, displaying arts, uh, works which have been removed, in some cases just cut out of uh, a building or a structure, or de- detached at any rate from the context in which they were, were intended to be seen. And uh, making a mosaic of photographs is a sort of virtual way of doing that. Uh, the, the point about the Indian sculptors actually was... Uh, was made to me some years ago by Philippe de Montebello, who's another person I collaborated with on a book, mm-hmm. who used to be for many years director of the Met. And he uh, is quite interested in how um, museums such as the Met are absolutely full of uh, works which uh, in, in have been, so to speak, repurposed. They, they used to be... Uh, images of uh, gods or um, depictions of sacred mythology or uh, possibly items uh, involving sympathetic magic. Uh, And instead, they're presented as works of art, simply aesthetically. And that, again, that's not necessarily bad, but it it changes them completely. He was interested to note, he was looking at some Indian uh, Hindu sculptures in a museum in uh, Delhi, and, and he, was noticed, he noticed people leaving offerings in front of them. So there, there was a sort of little overlap. Hmm. Um, but my, my 
uh, moment of realization was in uh, Tamil Nadu and southern India, to, uh, because in most of the temples we uh, we visited, when you went inside, there was some sort of ceremony going on, and it was very much as if you know one had gone into the Parthenon, say. In uh, classical times, uh, rather than looking at it as an interesting ruin, there was you know, there, there was incense, there was mm-hmm. darkness, there were people chanting prayers. Uh, there was a sort of new, as a numinous atmosphere of worship, and that absolutely changes one's reaction to um, a sculpture, for example. Mm-hmm. And even in places like churches um, that don't present necessarily works of art in that kind of decontextualized way but the act of the the tourist or the the cultural pilgrim they go to see the works of art in their original locations and their experience is decontextualized a little bit like they're looking at it as a great work of art not as an object of of worship yes that's right there's a slippage there and uh, and some of the more heavily visited churches in Italy, for example, are essentially, you know, Santa Croce, for example, in Florence, are turning into museums. Uh, excuse me, uh, are turning into uh, have been turned into museums. De, de facto, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, when, you know, when I went to grad school, we 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 talked a lot about Benjamin and kind of the you know post-war theorists Adorno and we made a big fuss about this idea of the aura right and Walter Benjamin talks about this in his essay right the uh, work of art in the mechanical age of production or whatever Um, and so I I was just wondering um, what your thoughts are on on this like if museums in the digital age may not necessarily according to Benjamin's thesis destroy an aura but actually kind of help Create it. Well, it's a different sort of aura. Um, I mean, the the aura which um, used to be connected with uh, holiness. In the case, for example, of the uh, uh, Sol Mundi uh, attributed to Leonardo, mm. has, has now been replaced by an aura of an enormous sum of money, which um, possi- possibly unwisely spent on it um, by by somebody at auction. Um, well, Benjamin's, um, it seems to me, it was right and wrong. It's, uh, for the reasons I set out earlier on, uh, I, I think just on visual grounds, uh, the, the original does have a special status, uh, uh, which uh, can't be replicated by, by reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, he was right that uh, reprodu- uh, reproductions utterly changed our response and understanding of work works of art, and that that's a process I've uh, traced it back to 1839. It's possibly you could trace it back to the 16th century when people started making reproductive prints of works of art, so you didn't actually have to go to uh, Rome to get some idea of what the Raphaels and Michelangelo's in the Vatican looked like. You could, at any rate, you could see a black and white image in um, some remote place in Northern Europe. Yes, you you, you could see prints of sort of figures, bits, compositions. So 
Um, the dis- distribution of images has been going on since then, and ever more intensively. And uh, as, I, as I touched on earlier on, I think art history really depends on lining up images and making connections between objects, which uh, which may be hundreds or thousands of miles away, separated in reality. And so you couldn't, unless you had a had a reproduction of it, you you couldn't um, you couldn't produce theories about influence and style and mm. um, the sort of questions that art historians like to discuss. Um, so yes, um, reproduction certainly alters things, and the 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 level of uh, kinds of aura change, but it seems to me there's a genuine. Uh, extraordinary quality about uh say a great painting especially if you see it uh in the right mood at the right time in the right place uh, which will probably be the place it was made in or for your book touches on this uh quite a few points right and the idea being the the act of traveling to see a work of art, right? The act of traveling for the sake of culture yes. kind of amplifies or intensifies um, kind of the mind, right? Making it more receptive yep. and helping build the the special nature of the work of art by the very act of traveling to that place. Yes. Uh, that's a, that's a, an idea which I probably picked up from talking to artists that, James Terrell again has said to me that uh, he has put a lot of works in remote places and his magnum opus still under construction after over 40 years uh, is in the Arizona desert. Uh, And there are some in actually in Britain, for example, in some fairly remote places. Um, And he says, uh, what he said to me that the the journey is the ticket of admission in a way. You may not have to pay to look at the work, but you you put in the time and the and the effort required to, to travel to it, and that in its in itself puts you in a different frame of mind of moving around, which mm-hmm. means your frame of mind and uh, the the commitment you have to make to make a special journey to see something um, will, will change your attitude to it. For, for one thing, you'll, if you if, if you spend a day just moving to be uh, across the surface of the globe to be in front of it, then you'll it, you'll spend some time looking at it. You won't just glance at it. Uh, I mean, mm. I understand that uh, the average visitor to a museum spends something like one minute, I can't remember the exact time, one minute, 30 seconds in front of each work of which half of which time is spent reading the label beside it. <laughs> um, and if you, as I say, if you, if you travel to the Arizona desert to see James Terrell's piece there, then you're, you're going to spend a long time <laughs> getting the most out of it. And um, uh, Ronnie Horn, another American artist, I went to a chapter about uh, going to the inauguration of a work of hers in the north of Iceland, she said, uh, when I met her, she said two things that stuck in my mind. One is that uh, uh, she said that she was a different person talking to me than she would be talking to the next person she met because uh, my presence 
affected her. And similarly, she was a different person in Iceland from the person she was in New York City because the ambience, the, the journey, the difference in climate, all those things change you. You're, you're changed by the context. Mm. And, I, and all of that, I think, is true. Sure, sure. On a very kind of basic level, you travel to a different place and you have a different uh, mindset, you have a different uh, emotion, but especially in the context mm. of feeling inspired, right? Different places call to different types of people for different reasons. Um, and mm. It's very true. My wife, um, she she's French and now she lives here in Orlando and mm. she is deeply <laughs> unhappy uh, in Orlando. And she she tells me that she feels uninspired here and places can have that sort of kind of impact on on the mind and yes and people yes yeah, so yes a new place opens up new possibilities my my co-author david hockney has now moved to normandy from los angeles which mm. is quite a quite a big step and he's just for the last six months or more he's been working in the um norman countryside he's got a uh 17th or 16th century half timbered house and a studio in a barn and uh, that certainly changed his work and given him a, given him a new burst of energy and inspiration. It's mm. interesting. You speak with a, a, a great number of kind of iconic uh, artists in this book. Uh, you, will you recall about your, your interviews with them, people like Marina Abramovich and Henri Cartier-Bresson and, and people like that? Mm. Um, and so you, you kind of go into their personal spaces, you travel to them right? And places in which yes. they're comfortable. So could you, um, I guess, speak to this? Um, how does in going into their space, interviewing them in their location, what does that do to the experience of the conversation or the interview? I think uh, journeying, to, journeying to, to, to talk to an artist, especially if it's in the place they live and quite Possibly the place they work as well uh, is is similar to travelling to see a work of art. You, uh, the your state of mind uh, changes during the journey, and in my case, because I uh, would be travelling to interview interview them, I, uh, it it would it, generally I'd be reading about the person, thinking about them as I travelled. Mm. And um, the thing can happen to you. I've mentioned several times with um, an artist and their and their surroundings is that you start seeing the world in terms of their art. Uh, another person I interviewed in the book was uh, Ellsworth Kelly, American abstract painter, and I remember that as I was flying across the Atlantic. Uh, uh, reading up on Elsworth Kelly, I, I started to notice that, um, for example, the, the curve of the wing of the plane against the blue sky out of the window, that started, that looked like an Ellsworth Kelly. I started mm. seeing Ellsworth Kellys everywhere. Um, and I think uh, physically being in the presence of a person is a, is a little bit like um, being physically in the presence of a sculpture uh, or a work of art, there's, there's, there's more of an exchange of uh, 
psychological and uh, intellectual DNA if you're actually sitting in front of somebody or standing in front of them and, and chatting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, the, the, the other thing about the interview experience specifically is that um, uh, the normal rules of conversation uh, don't apply. You're allowed just during the process of the interview. You're allowed to ask more than anything. Uh, you think you want to you want you want to know the answer to really. Um, mm-hmm. Which you know, if you met somebody at a dinner party or um, uh, in a social context, you wouldn't actually immediately be able to launch into um, uh, questions about the, the way they go about taking their photographs or painting their pictures or uh, exactly how their work it's uh, it evolved and all that sort of thing. It would be um, a bit of a faux pas to try to try to try that if you were just introduced to somebody. But uh, but in um, in an interview, you're, you're just just for that magic hour, whatever it is, hour and a half, you 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 can you can ask and you'll be answered. And if you manage to engage them in the conversation, then you, you may start um, finding stuff, getting them to say things they haven't reflected on before, or haven't mentioned to anyone before. So it's in a way, it's it's a, it, it turns into the first draft of uh, a new art history. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the hope, anyway. Yeah, that's. Uh... Very interesting stories here. Um, meeting Marina Abramovich in, in particular, and and also many of the other artists. Um, you know, we have these kind of constructed ideas of how they are um, based on on their work, and according mm. to some of the stories that you recount, um, they are in, in some ways surprisingly uh, different. Right, welcoming, warm friendly <laughs> uh, yes because Marina Rambert for example yes yeah, very uh, very easy to get on with and uh, she, as she explained it occupies a completely different uh, uh, psych- or operates on a completely different psychological mode in, in ordinary life uh, mm-hmm. from the kind of, from the uh, she, uh, she, uh, or the state she manages to get, uh, psych herself into for, for work which she can um do quite a lot of things which in normal life would be uh, pretty alarming, uh, but uh, uh, which she, she said would alarm her if she were just doing them, you know, while pottering around the apartment or uh, um, slicing onions in the kitchen. Uh, she, she, she said, you know, she cuts herself with a knife in the kitchen. She she cries, but there's a famous work in which she's she's stabbing at her hand with a knife uh, around her fingers at early work. And, uh, and that, because that's her, she was in the uh, state of mind of, of being a performance artist, that didn't bother her, even though I think she quite often hits herself. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, fascinating stuff here. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, in, in photography and the, the chapters that deal with the photography um, uh, interviews were, were just really really fascinating uh to me right and especially with the um the meeting with cartier bresson like he, martin frank was there as well of course and um in yes. several of your stories you you refer to um 
towards the end of them several regrets um, that you yes. you wish you had stayed for dinner, for example. Um, yes, yes. Well, Kanye Bresson and his wife, Martin Frank, was very kindly inviting to stay on after the interview. And I, I, I kicked myself. I, I, I'm... Um, I'm quite a, a nervous traveller as well as a compulsive traveller, and mm. uh, I'd had a lot of trouble, uh, trouble rather, um, uh, travelling over to Paris for Eurostar, and, uh, and I was uh, and I was just absolutely fixated on getting back to uh, to Belgium or getting the right train. So I went back to house apologising, and uh, and subsequently felt that was a, that was a ridiculous thing to have done. Mm-hmm. Do you have any um, other other interviews or stories that didn't make the book? Oh, dozens, yes. Oh. I have uh, plenty for volume two if the publishers would like one <laughs> sometime down the line, yes. Um, I've spent an awful lot of time talking to Arthur. I, I thought you, you uh, gave a sort of job description of me to start off with a writer art question. So forth. I've sometimes thought that the, the true description of what I do is listening to artists, although that's not a sort of known profession. Mm-hmm. So how 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 does one listen to to an artist? Um, I think uh, you have to um, be prepared and uh, uh, read about them and read around the subject and. Uh, uh, and mentally, at any rate, script the way the conversation may go in advance, uh, but be completely prepared to abandon that script at, at any moment, as you probably will have to, because um, uh, if the conversation gets interesting, then they'll start saying new things, and that's really that's really the hope. So it's uh, it's you got to, it's a little bit like uh, Cartier Bresson, his idea of the. Uh, pacing around like a zen archer to poised ready to, to, to start. You've got to, you've got to be ready to uh, move the conversation in a certain direction or or follow it or, and, and to decide on the instant which which way to go and you also very important um, uh, got to somehow prevent yourself from uh, Hogging the space yourself, because uh, if a conversation gets interesting, there's always a temptation to to start telling the, the world famous uh, great artists what your opinion is, and then you, uh, you you get home and you find you've got a recording of your own views with the with the artist trying 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 to break in from time to time, mm. and perhaps also accepting the glass of whiskey. Yes, uh, well, it, 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 with some interviews, you, you would have to drink, um, or, or, or that would be the, the assumption, especially in the old days. Mm-hmm. Um, For the listeners uh, to understand what we're talking about, in, the, in in one of the chapters, I think it's the one with uh, Cartier-Bresson, he offers you... Cartier-Bresson was out here often... Yeah, he offered me a whiskey, perhaps because <laughs> uh, I'm British, and he was <laughs> thing to do. It was about ten thirty-five in the morning, <laughs> really early. Just starting on spirits, but in that case, if that was uh, obviously the, uh, the, the correct thing to do, to accept it in the same way that 
in, in seeing Robert Rauschenberg uh, involved accepting quite a few glasses of chilled white wine. Very good. Well, on, on a final note here, um, c- can you just make the case, right? Why Why should someone in this day and age travel anywhere to see art? Uh, well, if you're interested in art, mm-hmm. uh, then uh, traveling to, to, to stand in front of it, wherever it is, and it may be only as far as your local museum or um, uh, some uh, gallery uh, not too far away from home, but, but, uh, but traveling to it is an essential part of the operation because what used to, what was called the, uh, the Imaginary Museum, which I, I think Andre Malois uh, wrote a book about in the 50s, uh, doesn't really, uh, we've now got an enormous uh, potential Imaginary Museum. I've just got to um, open my laptop and, and start looking on Google Images and, and thousands and thousands of images uh, cascade across my screen. But that's not, uh, so to speak, the full picture. You mm-hmm. to, 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 to experience the work of art, you've got to stand, if it's a painting, you've got to stand actually in the position more or less that the artist stood in in the first place, that's in front of it. You. Mm. Don't have to hold a, a palace and a, and a brush, but you've got to be in that physical um, proximity to it to uh, to to, to uh, understand, experience, um, contemplate, meditate. It's all the things which the work of art uh, invites you to do. There's a uh, in Britain, I'm not sure whether it's uh, spread to the states yet. In Britain, there's uh, a, a, a a nascent, uh, slow-looking movement, which is on, built on the analogy to with the uh, slow-cooking movement, mm. which started in Italy uh, maybe a decade or so ago. Uh, slow-cooking means it's obviously the opposite of fast food. Uh, slow-looking uh, is, I think, for example, offered by the tape gallery in London on certain tours. So instead of being taken around the whole collection in an hour and a half, um, or, uh, or many, many works in it. You go on a tour and you just see three things by the same artist. Hmm. And that's not a bad strategy actually for going to a museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you mentioned, uh, Rothko earlier and, you know, this is his work is the type of work that you need to sit and contemplate and meditate in front of in order to, even begin to understand or you know comprehend what uh, what he what it was he was trying to do, so I think that's a good defense of mm. of that. Um, yeah, yes, I, you you spend all day in front of Rothko if you're <laughs> if you're that way inclined. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, your book is fascinating. I found it to be kind of un, unassuming, right? It's it's art history, basically traveling to see art, but it's. You know, it's not how it doesn't have the the haughtiness that you would find in many academic uh, art history journals and things. So it's well, it's really you. accessible. I, well, that, I'm very pleased to hear that. Uh, that. That was certainly that was certainly the hope. Yeah. Um, so where can we um, find you online? 
Ah, I, I've got a website, uh, Martin, Day, Martin Gayford, uh, all one word, .co.uk. Very good. We'll, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And, uh, well, I wish you success with this book. It was just recently published. So I hope that you do well with it and keep on writing. Well, thank you. It's, been, uh, it's very nice uh, to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel-related news, book recommendations, and resources from around the world. Links can be found at allovertheplacepodcast.com.